Welcome, dear friends, fans, and uh, colleagues to Voices of the Sacred Feminine, uh, now in its eighth year. I'm your host, Karen Tate, and it's my pleasure to be bringing you this show. And I thank you for listening from all across the globe. And thanks goes out, too, to tonight's musical artist, Lisa Thiel, for one of uh, my favorite songs of hers, A Warrior Goddess. Um, I had some technical difficulties tonight. Uh, I just got online in the nick of time, so I want to apologize in advance uh, to my guest, who I see has been holding there, and we'll chat about that in just a minute. Uh, but uh, again, my apologies uh, to my listeners and uh, uh, my my dear guest, uh, Sally Roche Wagner. So, um, but uh, let's just get with it here. I'll shake off the uh, the, the technical difficulties and, uh, you know, just sort of uh, get on with the show here. Um, and, but now I've lost my switchboard. Oh, could anything else go wrong tonight? Just one second while I try to bring it back up on the screen. And, you know, this rarely ever happens. feels like we are in Mercury retrograde or something. Uh, just a second, please. Well, while I try to bring up the uh, the the right screen here, uh, I just want to remind you uh, about something big coming up: uh, the big free fun book launch party, uh, uh, marking my uh, launch of my fourth book, uh, "Voices of the Sacred Feminine: uh, Conversations to Reshape Our World." It's an anthology of guests from this very show. Uh, It is next week from 7 to 10 at the Goddess Temple. We'll have special guests, uh, contributors to the anthology, sharing their wisdom. Uh, The incredibly talented Miranda Rondeau, uh, performing a piece in tribute to Lane Redman. Singer-songwriter Jackie Clark will lift us up with her beautiful voice. Rowan Storm, internationally known drum circle facilitator, will engage the audience. And two sacred dancers, Maria Kelly Lavetti and Brenda McCoy, performing the Dance of Three Veils. Books will be available at a deep discount. You can have contributors sign copies, truly taking home a real collector's item. We'll also have wonderful raffle items. If you were at the book launch party in April, folks were gaga over the raffle items and free book tables so don't miss it. So if you're within driving distance, please come as we come together and launch this new book um, to our evening's theme, Celebrating Partnership. 
And if you're interested, you can pre-order Voices of the Sacred Feminine at a discount uh, from Amazon right now. Uh, Some of my guests, uh, like Noam Chomsky, Laura Flanders of Grit TV, Gloria Felt of Planned Parenthood, feminist scholars and visionaries such as Rianne Eisler, Jean Shinoda Bolin, Phyllis Chesler, to name just a few uh, radio show guests are included in the anthology. And their essays take our interview to the next level. So it complements what you can hear from them here in the archive. So please check it out. And if you want an advanced copy, just go over to my website and you'll have a copy in your hands now rather than waiting until late November or early December when Amazon starts mailing out books. Uh, And um, I am going to say hello to uh, my guest before I go any further here. I feel so bad about how things uh, started off tonight. Dr. Sally, are you there? Can you hear me? I am, Karen. How are you? Oh, thank, I. you know what? I am a bit frazzled, <laughs> but we're together now, and I'm going to oh. take a breath and try to get back on track. <laughs> Great. Great. Um, oh, I'm delighted to be with you. Well, thank you so much. I am really interested in talking about this subject. I think it is so timely. And, um, you know, if you can just hold on with with me a minute here, uh, we will uh, start our interview in just the next couple minutes, if that's okay with you. Absolutely. Okay. Thank you so much. So anyway, yes, listeners, I was away last week. Some of you wrote me asking if you missed the show. No, you didn't. I was taking a little break. Well, sort of. I was out of town performing an ordination of a wonderful woman in San Diego. Uh, But you will still have four shows this month, as I actually have two shows scheduled next week on Monday and Wednesday. On Monday, I'll be chatting with Professor Ted Peters from Pacific Lutheran Theological Seminary from Berkeley, California. And while we don't often cover this kind of topic, Topic much. Ted has written a book entitled UFOs, God's Chariots. And, you know, I kind of like to hear his take as a theologian and religion scholar, which he is, on the subject. Uh, because with shows like Ancient Aliens becoming a kind of secular religion to so many these days, I thought it might be interesting to see what he has to say. Then Wednesday, Kali Corgill is with us discussing Daughters of Time and Don't Take It Lying Down, Life According to Goddess. Uh, followed by Hillary Ramo, both ladies on the show Wednesday. Uh, Hillary will talk about love, breathe for earth. Uh, but that's all next week. Tonight I'm very happy to have with us Dr. Sally Roche-Wagner. She's the founding director of the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation in Fayetteville, New York. And our topic is Sisters in Spirit, the Iroquois Indian Influence on Women's Rights, uh, published by Native uh, Voices Press. We'll also be discussing her newly finished manuscript, Citing the Influence of Indigenous Peoples Further from women's rights to survival of life on the planet. Just like we've been saying here for quite some time, um, ways of women, ways of the sacred feminine, uh, do provide a template for a more sustainable uh, future than the patriarchy that we live in. So I'm very glad to have Dr. Sally with me tonight. Then afterwards, don't go away. I have more to tell you about our sacred tour to Turkey in late May of next year. And my What's the Buzz buzz segment tonight, uh, when I talk about the bees buzzing around in my bonnet, Well, this week it's all about the pervasive headlines about the NFL and domestic violence against women, including what women endure who are in the porn industry. So uh, that said, uh, I think it might be appropriate to read uh, something uh, from Eve Ensler. She says, 
her, I quote, I am over the passivity of good men. Where the hell are you? You live with us, make love with us, father us, befriend us, brother us, get nurtured and mothered and eternally supported by us. So why aren't you standing with us? Why aren't you driven to the point of madness and action by the rape and humiliation of us? Unquote. That's Eve Ensler. So, okay, without further delay, uh, let me uh, welcome Dr. Sally to the show uh, by way of her bio, and then we will start her chat. And again, I thank her for her patience with all the craziness tonight. Uh, Dr. Sally Roche-Wagner, as I said already, she's the founding director of the Matilda Jocelyn Gage Foundation in New York. Uh, She's a nationally recognized lecturer, author, and performance interpreter of women's rights history. She's one of the first women to receive a doctorate in the United States for work in women's studies from UC Santa Cruz, and she's a founder of one of the country's first college women's studies programs from uh, USC Sacramento. Dr. Wagner has taught in women's studies for 44 years. She currently serves as adjunct faculty in the honors program at Syracuse University. She received the Catherine Coffey Award from the Mid-Atlantic Association of Museums for outstanding service to museology in 2012. So, again, let me officially welcome you to the show, Sally. Thank you. (laughs) It's usually not this crazy. (laughs) Oh, it's interesting hearing all the exciting things going on. Well, that's true. It is. It is a busy time, isn't it? You know, I mm-hmm. was. I was thinking this uh, just in the last few days as I was um, hearing all the back and forth and, you know, the minute-to-minute changes about the domestic violence stuff with the NFL and then this other yeah. NFL guy who's now, you know, charged with uh, abusing the children. You know, I almost thought, you know, it's like things have to get much worse. Um, or at least more in the public eye, I think, before things get better. And I almost wonder, and I know this is a little off topic, and, and but if you feel like you want to comment, please do. Um, I wonder if this isn't in a way blessing in disguise, you know, that there's so much media around this, so much focus around this, that maybe some change will actually come in society. You know, I absolutely agree with you. I One of the things that I feel so strongly is that we are in the center of the revolution, and it's hardest to see, I think, when you're living it. And a hundred years from now, I think there will be this extraordinary uh, you know, sort of looking at this moment when social media is creating cultural change within days in ways that in the 1960s, 70s, never would have thought possible. I mean, when when the head of the NFL is now enlisting feminists to help him come up with a policy, we've won. We haven't won. We haven't won. But the change in consciousness that is happening so quickly uh, through social media is just extraordinary. And the way that that minute by minute, uh, the the pressure is so strong that they have to step down. And the other thing I think is that, you know, Marx talked about, um, you know, you speak in the language of the people. 
And football, quite frankly, I think, is the language of the United States culture. And if the NFL speaks the language of no tolerance, that will be an extraordinary victory. Yeah, I mean, that's actually what I'm going to talk about in, in my What's the Buzz segment in a, in a little bit more detail. But, yeah, I mean, I really do believe if the NFL is forced, I mean, obviously they don't want to do this. They've been no. trying to sweep this under the rug forever. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, women control a lot of the purse strings. And, you know, yes. they're going to decide if the family buys season tickets. And, you know, if I really do think that maybe, you know, and, and I forget which magazine it is. Um, oh, I wish I could remember. But uh, I just saw uh, pictures on television last night where they're coming out with women in their magazine using makeup to give themselves black eyes and bruises. Uh, and they're using that, uh, you know, uh, you know, more pressure, you know, more pressure to the NFL that there should be a zero tolerance for beating Ms. up your wife and girlfriend. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was Ms. Magazine, I think, online that okay. had that image. Yeah. Yeah, listeners can probably go uh, Google Ms. and probably find those mm-hmm. images. But uh, I do think it's incredible. And, you know, you're probably right. I think it is probably very hard to see the revolution while you're in the middle of it because it feels like one step forward, two steps back. One yes. step forward, three steps back. You mm-hmm. know, and you just you never feel like you're getting there. It feels like it's never going to happen. But yet then, you know, something incredible happens and you go, Wow, you know, look how quickly mm-hmm. something could change. Yes. And I think that's the power of social media today. And the power of voices, very strong, uh, petitioning online, saying this is not acceptable. And it's victory after victory, and it's under the radar screen. Yeah, because I think if the NFL falls and has to, you know, give in to this and take a zero tolerance policy, then it's going to be the basketball and it's going to be Mm -hmm. baseball and it's going to be sports and then it's going to be the military. And pretty Mm -hmm. soon it's going to be taboo to beat your wife. It's not going to just get swept under the rug anymore. Yes. So. Okay. <laughs> well, we were going to talk. We were going to go. We were going to get in the wayback machine tonight, and we yes. were going to go go back to these wonderful uh, Iroquois women who had such wisdom, who taught our founding fathers so much. Um, if they had only been able to stay front and center. And, you know, as I'm talking to you, Sally, I am looking at Lady Liberty. I have a a replica from her when we uh, made our trip to Washington. And um, you're probably familiar with uh, the Native American influence of uh, Lady Liberty on top of the Capitol building, I would imagine. Yes. Mm -hmm. Was... uh, Uh. Was that the Iroquois, or is, or was that just Native American women in general that influenced um, Lady Freedom or Lady Liberty up there on the Capitol? Do you know? Well, I think that, that that's sort of in some ways the tip of the iceberg, that the influence of the Haudenosaunee, their name for themselves, the, the Iroquois is one of those imposed names uh, done by the French, and usually those names that were imposed names by the um, by the colonizers were names that were sort of um, 
bad names. There were names that were, you know, poison snake, all kinds of things like that. So the, <laughs> but the, Hun, the, the Haudenosaunee really schooled the founding fathers in the concept of democracy. And if we think about the influence coming from uh, way back in, you know, Greek and Roman history, but in fact, they saw it in action. The founding fathers saw a democracy, which may be the oldest continuing democracy on earth. They saw that in action, and they were brought into it. Because if we think about it, these were people who came into a very well-established social, governmental, spiritual, highly, highly developed, uh, cultures, individual nations, and they had to assimilate in some ways in order to survive. And the Haudenosaunee were extraordinary uh, in terms of diploma, uh, diplomacy, and so the founding fathers, the, well, the colonizers from the beginning, had to deal with the Haudenosaunee. Now, I I would generalize in some ways, but I would be getting out of my uh, comfort zone. I can do anecdotal stories about um, the influence, but the influence was in all kinds of ways. It was political. Uh, you know, these are people coming from a monarchy, and they are exposed to people who make decisions by consensus. And mm-hmm. these and these were the, the, the main occupiers of the land where they were, so of course they saw that and were influenced by it. But the area that just blew me away was the influence on women's rights. And that's really what my interest has been. Well, and, 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 and you know, and I'm going to take a stab at pronouncing their real name because I said Iroquois because I hadn't had a chance to talk to you before the show with my you technical difficulties I, to say, uh, is it Haudenosaunee? Is that it? Uh, yeah, the, the uh, Onondaga pronunciation, as well as I can do it, is Haudenosaunee. But I have to tell you, it took me about two years for that to come trippingly to my tongue. So yes, don't it doesn't worry roll off the tongue quite so <laughs> easily. And the way it's spelled doesn't doesn't you know seem like that either. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. so so all right. So the Haudenosaunee, otherwise known as the Iroquois, yes. Um, how well? Well, first, well, I, I want to get into how they lived. You know, women's women's uh, life then. But I guess I want to ask you. I, and I mean, you've written about all of this in your book. But um, how, or the what we know about them um, was that written by founding fathers or historians of the time. I mean, because they obviously weren't um, writing English. So, I mean, it's secondhand accounts, I would imagine, or how do we know? Well, the the um, resources are actually extraordinary, and many of them are not online, uh, the primary sources. But for this latest manuscript, I went back to the earliest um, explorers and uh, missionaries uh, that that had contact with the Haudenosaunee. And there are tremendous resources. There's, there's, um, you know, one could not begin to even approach reading it in one's lifetime. There's that much. And wow. I looked at it over a 300-year period. 
And a couple of, let me just give you a couple of examples. Sure. Um, one of them is that um, the newspapers during the 19th century, because that's what I was really looking at, my question was, it came from my work about Matilda Jocelyn Gage, the most radical of the 19th century. Suffragist, she was equally important during her time with Anthony and Stanton. And my whole question has been, how did she get written out of history and why? And one of the things that was interesting to me was seeing that she had been adopted into the wolf clan of the Mohawk Nation. I didn't know what that adoption meant. It turns out there's seven or eight different levels of adoption, and hers was primarily an honorary one. But she was given a real name, a name that continues to be used today. When uh, someone passes, their name goes into what, at least non-Native people have called the bag of, of names that the clan mother holds. And she then, you know, passes a name out of the bag for someone, a newborn child, to occupy during their lifetime, and then the name goes back in. So the names never end. The woman who carries the name that Matilda carried uh, today at Akushasne is doing the most extraordinary work uh, to work within the community to end violence against women and children. And that just seems so extraordinarily appropriate uh, that I think, you know, Matilda would just think with such honor that for a short time she carried that name. Right. Um, and the, and what, was the, what was the name? Do, can, do we... Um, I will try to say it, and if I, if um, any of my Mohawk friends are listening, they will just howl. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. <laughs> Give it your it, best. It begins, it begins with a K, and but the the Mohawk pronunciation is a sort of a guttural G, and um, so it's Kohanahawi, but that's that's a very bad non-native pronunciation. It almost sounds Hawaiian a little bit. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But it means means she who holds the sky or sky carrier. That's beautiful. Well, Mm. in in, um, curious though, uh, I mean, you know, we have so many native, I I mean, all right, granted, there's so many different Native American peoples, and some of them were so patriarchal. I mean, I've had, you know, Native American women on the show, and, you know, there's still so much oppression and misogyny, um, but but the Haudenosaunee or Iroquois, they, did they stay um, should I should we call them matrilineal, matri? I mean, were they, were they just egalitarian? What, what label should we put on them? You know, egalitarian is is very clearly the the women themselves just you know they they live the traditional women just live this and and sort of don't have sense in that way that we universalize until they have real clear contact with the non-native culture that it's any different. Um, okay, one of that the makes things sense. that I hear often from Haudenosaunee women is, you know, we didn't realize you had it so bad. No wonder <laughs> you need a woman's movement. But I think one of the things that I'm really questioning, and, and an example of it is the Lakota, 
that I've always presumed, based on anthropological truths, that the um, Lakota were patriarchal. But Lakota women now are going back to before the colonizing experience and saying, that's not our traditional culture. And there's so much evidence of it. Let me give you one example. In fact, about violence against women. Um, A friend of mine, Tilly Blackbear, she was the founder or a founder of one of, it was the very first battered woman shelter on a native nation. And Tilly passed this last summer. But Tilly tells a story or told a story about, it was a member of her her. Tayoshpe, her her family clan from generations before where a man had abused his wife and her, the men of her family had given him a weapon, a gun or a knife and he and, and told him to go into the hills and he did and he killed himself. Mm. Now that's the degree to which um, violence against women was treated in 18, um, 1888, the first international gathering of feminists happened in Washington, D.C., the International Council of Women. And there was a woman named Alice Fletcher, who was an early ethnographer, who told this story. She told a couple of stories, and I'll tell you the second one first. But she said, there are, she said, I've had conversations with Native men where they have told me about how concerned they are with becoming citizens and having, you know, the forced citizenship placed on them. And this was when the boarding school experience was really being pushed and federal law was encroaching on Native law. And he said, she said, these Native men have told me they are really concerned about what's going to happen to them with this, you know, forced citizenship, but they're more concerned about what's going to happen to women because the women will lose doubly. They'll lose their rights as women and they'll lose their rights as Indians. And one of the rights that Alice Fletcher talks about is she says if if a man does violence to a woman, her clan men, you know, the, the members of her clan, the men of her clan, will make sure that doesn't happen again. Now, mm. under under Indian law, that's appropriate, you know, re, that's the way you take care of it. And right, banishment right. was common among Native nations. Banishment, um, the Haudenosaunee, the clan mother chooses the chief based on and nominates the chief based on three sort of rules. One, he cannot have committed a murder. Two, he cannot have committed a theft. And three, he cannot have abused a woman. And a chief cannot be a chief if he's abused a woman. So it was taken very, very seriously. And Alice Fletcher said, you know, under Indian law, the the men of her clan will take care of the problem and it will not happen again. But under U.S. law, you know who's going to suffer? She said, it will be not the man who has done the violence to his wife because that's legal. Who will suffer are the clan members who have, you know, punished him for his behavior. And that, in 1888, 
Native people were aware that that was wow. what was going to happen. And, um, you know, and, it's, and doesn't it's, it kill you that, you know, they're the savages, you know? Here in all our white arrogance, you know, they were considered the savages. <laughs> oh, and and the newspapers are just full. And, and I found book after book, especially when I was looking at the 19th century, to see how did Matilda Jocelyn Gage get her vision. And it was clearly after a great deal of, you know, dealing with my own racism, which said, well, I can't imagine where she could have gotten it. Where She's telling me right in... Uh, the first chapter of her major book, book, Woman, Church, and State, she says, never was justice more perfect, never was civilization higher. And she's referring to what she calls the prehistoric matriarchies and the remnants of them that still remain worldwide among indigenous people. And I think that she really is... You know, if we if we call it matriarchal or matrilineal or gynocratic, um, I think what we're really talking about is probably indigenous culture generally. That's my hunch at this point. And my hunch also is that so much of anthropology that says that these native nations were patriarchal is actually looking at post-colonization. Yeah. And that before colonization, Tilly Blackburn and I would talk about, you know, I was saying in my culture, you know, we come from a culture in which it was religiously and legally sanctioned for husbands to beat their wives and rape their wives. That was in the law up until the second wave of feminism. And it, you know, the, the rule of thumb of the law, the rape laws that were almost always something to the effect that rape is an act of unlawful sexual intercourse with someone other than the wife of the perpetrator. So we come from a tradition where rape and and battering and violence against women is condoned. We're pushing to the future to stop that process. Tilly and Native women are pushing to remove colonization, to get back to the place where in their natural state, in their traditional ways, men did not do violence to women. And they, if they did, it was dealt with incredibly harshly. Well, and you know, there's also the issue of the ethnographers. Besides, and, and I mean, and, and please correct me if I'm wrong. You won't offend me, but I know when I was researching, you know, Polynesian culture to do my Sacred Places book, as I was, you know, looking for sacred sites over in the Polynesian Islands, one of the things I kept running across was the ethnographers. You know, they sort of color you know, uh, their retelling of these indigenous people's stories through their own lens, whether it be Christian, whether it be male, whether it be Victorian. And so I would imagine maybe some of that happened with the, you know, with the indigenous Native Americans as well, do you think? Absolutely, without a doubt. And and there's a couple other things. There's, I'll tell you a story that a, a friend of mine from Rosebud Reservation told me. She said that, that one time there were, she, I think they were from Harvard, there were some uh, doctoral candidates who were hanging around, you know, with pencil and paper and, and, and wanting to really, you know, study the, the Lakota culture and 
So a group of teenagers um, <laughs> went up to him and said, um, come with us. We want to show you something. And they took him up to the swimming hall, and they, on the spot, created <laughs> this this ancient Lakota mating ritual. <laughs> <laughs> and, and and these anthropologists were just writing like crazy. <laughs> they could, it was like, oh my God, we're getting our ourselves into this. This will make our reputations. <laughs> and, and it was just good Indian humor. <laughs> and, right. And right. I have heard more than one story of that of native people that have just pulled the legs of anthropologists. I think one of my favorite. Uh, story, whether it's apocryphal or not, I love it, is that Simon Ortiz um, at one point presumably is reputed to have addressed an anthropological society and he stood up and he went to the board and he wrote, the only good anthropologist dot, dot, dot. Okay, Uh, you have to connect the dots there for me. I'm not sure... What your what uh, point the only made. good Indian the only good Indian oh oh you know oh I reference? see that that yeah. horrible saying the only good Indian yeah. is a dead Indian so yep. it's the, sort yep. of the same thing with the anthropologist yep. and it ah. was it was both humorous and very biting humor I see so, yeah 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 I it must be hard to be an anthropologist <laughs> well then there's work by people like take. Peggy Sanday, who is really doing extraordinary work looking at matrilineal cultures around the world. And, you know, so it's not true that the only good anthropologist is dot, dot, dot. But right, uh, right. I think that, that the, the, the discipline of anthropology, as it's now really doing self-criticism, is saying exactly what you're saying. Well, and, you know, and I'm thinking about archaeology, too. I mean, I know what feminists Mm -hmm. go through in male-dominated archaeology, like what some of the women went through with Ian Hodder at Chateau Hayuk in Turkey. Mm -hmm. And it it seems like these male archaeologists bend themselves into pretzels to not see some (laughs) things if it it (laughs) elevates females, and then they Um. connect the dots that aren't even there to see male-dominated stuff. You know, they're biased, and I think they don't even sometimes realize that they're biased Uh, or or out-of-place artifacts, you know, that, Um, you know, might cause them to have to rethink history. Well, you know, they don't want to do all of that, you know, (laughs) because maybe reputations are on the line or something. Mm -hmm. I think absolutely. And I think the the way in which I've, I've seen that with, um, you know, with the work that I've done and the folks that did the preliminary work on the Haudenosaunee influence on democracy found it even more so than I did that there was incredible resistance and still is on the part of, of um, the sort of old school um, ethno-historians and, and anthropologists and historians. Um, they, they've told the story. They've built their reputations on telling the story a certain way. And it's, you know, extraordinarily painful 
um, to have that all disrupted, you know? Right, right. Um, well, but, you but know, I look at it like, I, I mean, I look at it like this. Obviously, I, I mean, obviously I'm invested in certain beliefs, but if new information came along, I don't think I would want to be a dinosaur, you know? I, mm-hmm. I, I don't understand why they can't just say, yeah. okay, well, new evidence it makes us rethink it. Doesn't to me mm. that sort of makes them look like a bigger person rather than a smaller person, you know, that and, they can yeah, rethink. Re- mm-hmm. And and I think there's a number of cases where people are doing that. But I yeah. think to, you know, to look back and say, okay, I've published 10 books and they were all wrong. I think that's probably <laughs> yeah. a very difficult thing to do. But you know what's very exciting is that there are a number of Native people now that are being trained, that are getting degrees in in anthropology, and they are going to turn the field upside down. That's it's wonderful. It's really fantastic. Yeah, that's wonderful. And the I, work I they're producing, that. the work that they're producing is just brilliant because they have double vision you know they know they see it both from their cultures and from the discipline that they've studied and that methodology and and so their work is just it so far surpasses anything that any of us white folks are doing as far as the best of both worlds so so then um sally can we say and and maybe this is too um, too rigid a statement, but I, we have the Chumash out here in California, who I'm told were um, sometimes I forget whether it's matrifocal or matrilineal or egalitarian, but they weren't patriarchal. We, you know, I've heard that the, about the Lakota. Obviously, we got the Hoden, you know, Haudenosaunee slash Iroquois. Um, are, are, are you telling me that you think all of the or most of the Native Americans were uh, were egalitarian pre-colonization, or just some, or, or do we know? Navajo, Cherokee, you know, I think that that is a question that Native people will answer and are answering more and more as they're reclaiming their um, their sovereignty, uh, <laughs> both cultural sovereignty, political sovereignty, spiritual sovereignty, I think that they're really reclaiming their stories. But a couple of anecdotal things. Um, You know, Native people had tremendous routes of uh, communication, transportation. Um, They they, um, traded goods uh, long before um, there were any white people around here. And that, I think they, you know, the the um, influence they had on each other and the sharing of common values, um, that indigenous value system um, seems to be, if not universal, you know, it's, it's, it's a, a world that is based on relationships, not on profit, not on power, uh, not on individual, on, but on community, with strong individuals within the community. I think that there are, at least from from my understanding, some very common similarities among indigenous people. You know, a, a friend of mine from Pine Ridge went to visit folks in New Zealand and said, I thought they're they're just like us, you know. And and there are um, indigenous people meeting worldwide constantly, and they're doing 
of course, the the most important work, I think, the most visionary work in saving life on the planet because they've got the the um, you know they've done it for so many years. Right. Um, so I think that that one of the major um, changes that's happened in my thinking and my awareness is that you know I think that I saw Indians past tense. And now the most vital, active, important work that I think is being done on the planet is being done by indigenous people. Hmm. So, um, so Sally, the Haudenosaunee, um, forgive me if this sounds like a dumb question, but are there many left here in the United States? That was my first question when I saw Matilda Jocelyn Gage writing about uh, you know these these people who she sees as, as so far developed and and calls them the most civilized. And my first question was, well, were they, and are there any left? And it's I think that's not a dumb question. I think that's a very common um, you know awareness that's missing um, in our culture that we don't know, and largely, I think, because of the the creation of the reservation system where, you know, we, we took land and took land and took land, the dominant culture did, and then, you know, and then created reservations out of the remaining land. And initially, they couldn't even leave the reservations without permission of the white superintendent. Uh, in charge of the reservation, the reservation system, you know, was the model for um, apartheid in South Africa. When they yeah. were looking to establish a system, they based it on the reservation system in the U.S. And I think because of that, we we don't have we have a past tense awareness, and it's a carryover of that 19th century, Christianize and civilize them. You know, if we mm-hmm. can't kill them all, then we'll Christianize and civilize them mm-hmm. and we'll destroy their culture completely mm-hmm. and turn them into white people like they should be. And mm-hmm. it was this this terrible uh, religious um, arrogance. Yeah. Um, it was a terrible cultural arrogance. And um, I think we still, you know, I, I have vestiges of that I know in me today. I think sure. it's part of the the culture that we live in and what we grow up in and, and becoming and you know, a recovery it, racist becoming a recovering racist is one day at a time well you know i know what you're talking about because i grew up in the south horrible racism you know against black people or anybody that's not white horrible race you know uh, a religious intolerance against anybody that's not Christian. So I, I know it, you know, I, and you do. You struggle against it all the time, and it creeps up when you don't even realize it's, you know, it's it, and it's there, even when you're an aware person. Um, yeah. So it, it's tough. So so I guess, though, so what you're saying is the Haudenosaunee that are left, they've sort of gotten this, you know this this awareness that their ancestors had sort of beaten out of them. Is that what you're saying? Or, no, or you know, brainwashed out know, of them. It's. I think that that with Native nations, it's a a process of of you know decolonizing and 
in some cases and in in well to varying degrees i would say uh native nations have maintained their sovereignty onondaga has maintained their sovereignty tremendously the six nations of the iroquois confederacy still exist they still some of them have the traditional governments in which the the uh clan mothers nominate the chiefs hold them in position um and its decisions are made by consensus um and the the confederacy the center of the confederacy of the six nations of the Haudenosaunee nations is in Onondaga it's like 30 minutes from where I'm sitting right now it's in it's just outside of Syracuse New York and the chiefs still meet the traditional chiefs continue to meet as they have been meeting since long before Columbus the clan mothers still continue to choose the chiefs and hold them in place and the the one thing that i am so aware of is that if i say was past tense i have to be very careful that i'm talking about what i know then about then you know what i've studied about then but the practices and the um confederacy continue today among the traditional people and well, the women it. continue to have an authority that is just breathtaking i mean when i hang out with them i come away so strengthened in ways that they don't even recognize uh, you know be with some friends and I'll say, do you realize what just happened? And what just happened was part of their normal life and for me, it's an absolute astonishment. Give us an example. Oh, I'll, I'll give you one little tiny one. I I was um, visiting with, I actually had two experiences. One with a, a non-native friend where her high school son we were meeting. We had very little time to meet. Her high school son showed up, and bam, the meeting ended. It was everything was focused on him. It was that um, that through her reflection of half self, she reflected him as twice as big, you know. And mm-hmm. there, it was his behavior was arrogant. It was this sort of entitlement that he mm-hmm. walked in the door and. What was most important was that his gym shorts had to be washed, and she had to do that. And the fact that his mother was in a business meeting with someone who had to leave shortly out the window. A week later, I was sitting with a friend in her living room at the Onondaga Nation, and we were just sitting visiting, and all of a sudden, a, a cup of tea appeared beside me. And beside her, she didn't pay any attention. She just picked it up and started drinking. And I looked around to see who, where did this come from? It was her high school son. And Hmm. he had just brought in tea and set it down and walked away. And there was no, it was sort of like, this is just a very normal thing that, that boys do for their mother and their mother's friends. And there was no fanfare about it. And um, I wrote this up in in my book, Sisters in Spirit. And this woman's daughter was reading the book, and she was saying, oh, this is interesting, but I don't get 
what did what did he do? It was actually her brother who had, you know, brought in the tea. And she said, what did he do? And I said, well, he brought it. She said, yeah, but what did he do? And she couldn't, he, there was nothing he had done. Why would this appear in a book? This is the most normal, simple behavior. You don't write about these things. And it was, there was no way I could convey to her that that was an unusual experience. He was in the kitchen washing dishes. He was not washing dishes with any loudness that said, I am a male in here washing dishes. Notice what I'm doing. Mm-hmm. He's just in there washing dishes because that's what you do. And, so, Sally, uh, so wait, I, I just want to make sure I'm understanding the whole story. So was he the same boy that came in and expected his mother to stop her life because he needed his no, no. shorts washed? That was a that was a, a non-native boy. Oh, I see. I okay, okay. A friend. And then a week later, I was with a native friend. Um, so you're drawing the comparison. Book. You're drawing the comparison, the comparison between the two. And the comparison was, yeah, it was, it was, such a, a a major difference in behavior in in their uh, you know the whole way in which this was um, they presented themselves yeah demeanor and respect thinking, all of that mm-hmm. yeah mm-hmm. wow and well, and oh go ahead well and I was about to say you know the the few things we see on television about uh, Native American peoples. Um, well, you know. Well, let me preface this by saying, you know, I whenever I see uh, Hollywood depicting uh, people in New Orleans, where I'm from, New Orleans, Louisiana, they never get it right usually, you know. And mm-hmm. I, and I'm thinking the Native Americans probably say the very same thing because usually whenever we see Native Americans depicted on television, it's usually not in the most positive light, you know. Usually. You know the the women are are you know downtrodden and you know they're they're just kind of crazy alcoholics or um, not very many positive things do we see about Native Americans and it's probably uh, very inaccurate you know and, and of course unfortunate. Mm-hmm. There was a, a friend of mine in South Dakota who was telling me that. Um, the a film crew came out. Tom Brokaw and a film, I think it was his film crew came out to um, do a story on alcoholism in on the Native nations. And um, a, a, a Native friend of mine was walking by as the film crew was filming a drunk Indian on the street. And my friend walked up to him and said wait a minute, do you realize that you're filming this right next door to an alcohol program that has the highest rate of recovery of any alcohol program in the country? Mm-hmm. And they said, we're not interested. And they continued to film the Indian so they just, did, they just yeah. advanced the stereotype. That was the... So, and that's not always true. And the reality is that alcoholism and suicide and violence against women and children is is rampant in Indian country. And part of the process of healing that is the is the claiming of the memory of the the endemic sexual abuse and violence uh, in the boarding school experience. And that's mm. 
in some cases, three and four generations where the kids were systematically traumatized um, by the experiences that they had, so much so that oftentimes they couldn't even talk about it. And we're not talking about an individual traumatized. We're talking about entire communities who yeah. are suffering from uh, post-traumatic stress. Yeah, and, and Christianity and has under, so much to answer for. Oh, you know? boy. I, oh boy. <laughs> that's a whole other show. Don't um, get well, me started. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is the place to talk about it. Trust me. I had a friend say, you know what, Karen? You've cured me from Christianity. <laughs> I said, you couldn't <laughs> have complimented me better. <laughs> but, you know, well, and then just... It just recently, oh, I, Republicans, I heard Republicans didn't want to pass the Violence Against Women's Act uh, because it would have included protection for immigrants, uh, Native American women, and I forget, another group of women. And I thought, what is that about? Do, do you have any idea? Why uh-uh. did they not want to protect Native American women? I, you know, I don't. I don't know. I, You know, somebody from the National Coalition of domestic violence in the organization um, would really be able to answer that and speak to that. Um, and I, I, I have friends I can you know, have put you in touch with who could. I, I just don't feel like I can answer that because I don't have enough information. No, that's okay. Um, Mm-hmm. Well, that's okay, and, and I hope I didn't offend you. You know, I don't know if you, what your politics are, but you know, Republicans oh, no. just make me crazy. No, no. <laughs> I, they're you know they're anti-women. You know no. everything. Yeah. Um, but I, I just yeah. you know I, I just couldn't no. imagine. You know, it's like so. What these these women aren't entitled to the same protection that that white women yeah. are entitled yeah. to. I, I don't I don't even begin to know where that comes from. I just don't. Yeah. I can't even speculate. It's just right. so, it's unthinkable. So, Since Native um, women suffer violence more than non-Native women, they need well, the protection more. Well, and you know, look, I don't I don't feel very confident that Republican men in Congress are very smart. Uh, but knowing that, you know, I don't, you know, I, I figured they either don't know that or don't care. Um, of mm-hmm. course, you know, those are two assumptions, and they may yeah. be wrong, but... Um, you know, they don't get a lot right. I mean, you know, they're still trying to figure out if rape is legitimate in some cases, you know. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> uh, but, um, uh, but getting back to the, the power of the Haudenosaunee women, you sent me a list mm-hmm. of um, of of things that, uh, you know, women have had, you said women have had, Haudenosaunee women have had this authority since long before Christopher Columbus, and you listed the right to choose all political representatives, uh, removing from office anyone who doesn't address the wishes and needs of the people, uh, living in a world free from violence against them, women will not allow uh, a man to hold office if he's violated a woman, they have the final say in matters of war and peace, have the absolute right to their own bodies. They're economically independent. The women also are responsible for planning the spiritual ceremonies. And suffragist leaders had direct knowledge of the Haudenosaunee, um, and their work for women's rights was inspired by the vision they received uh, from the Haudenosaunee of gender balance and harmony. So the women, um, they they held a lot of sway, a lot of influence. It almost sounds like maybe they had more power than the men. You know, uh, here's a, a, a discussion that I've had 
often with Haudenosaunee women. Power is not a word they relate to because it's a word that comes from a system of inequality. And what they talk about is harmony and balance. I, I did a, a, a lecture once with a clan mother, a friend of mine from Onondaga at uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton birthday tea, and I did a quote from Elizabeth Cady Stanton about how the the clan mother has the power to cut off the horns of the chief if he doesn't, you know, listen to her and follow the needs of the people and oh the feminist crowd just went wild and you know it was just fun a fun moment I thought and then Audrey got up and said um you know I'm I'm have these responsibilities as a clan mother and one of them is to you know nominate the chief and to hold him in position and to to counsel him and 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 also I have the responsibility to remove him if he, you know, if he doesn't behave right. And she said, I, I, I haven't seen that. It would be the saddest thing I could ever imagine because we would be so out of balance. They see a world of gender balance and no one has power or authority over anybody else. So there's no power. You know, it's, right. a, it's a word that doesn't even resonate. And when I was when I was talking to Audrey later about, you know, equality is really a word that we use all the time in the Western world. But equality comes from a state of oppression. It comes from a condition of inequality. Mm-hmm. And when you have established a system of equality, you have a balanced system which is the condition for peace. Right. And and the underlying sort of philosophy, as I understand it, and John Mohawk, a late Seneca um, scholar, has, has just described this so brilliantly. But as best I can explain it or understand it, it's the sense that there, there must be a, an absolute equality of everyone because any inequality is the conditions for war. It's the right. at, so that so that peace is not the absence of war. Peace is the presence of justice. Wow. And so the minority voice is the most important voice, not the majority, but the minority. Because if the minority is not satisfied with the decision, then you have created an imbalance. You've created a condition of 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 disharmony where you know the 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 problem will be there. And so it's really critical that when you make a decision, it's done by consensus and the minority is the most is the strongest voice in the wow. in the decision making. And consensus is hard. I mean consensus mm. is really Especially hard. for us Westerners. Yes. You know, I think if you grow up in a world that's not independent or, or individualistic like ours is, if it's not based on power and competition and and those sorts of things, every part of our cultural ethos works against consensus. So those magical moments when we can actually function that way, uh, I think give us a sense of how we need to create a world that 
that has an entirely different value system. And part of that is getting rid of individual salvation. It, it, say, say it again, that is what? Is getting rid of individual salvation. The it's, Christian it's concept what you mean by of, that. Well, I think that that you know the 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 basis for capitalism is really set in the way that Christianity has been defined as a power system, and I think the idea that you know they're they're the chosen that will make it, they're the ones who won't. That this this really is not the real life. The real life is what happens later, and that you want to individually be saved. It's not a community save. It's an individual save. And um, I think that that, all, that sort of, uh, you know, focus on the individual and the focus on the afterlife um, is really one of the foundations of our culture that, uh, that has to be really, really rethought and changed. Well, well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I've said often, you know, that the new way to go, and you know, we sort of attach it to, you know, sometimes to goddess ideals or 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 feminine ideals. Is it should be about the we and the us, you know, not the I and the me, um, you know. So I get that, and um, and and, it, and that whole idea of that there's not even the the concept of power in their ideology. You know, it's really all about you know, balance and, and harmony. I mean, we have we have so much to learn. I mean, even mm-hmm. those of us who know the patriarchy isn't working, who know Christianity and capitalism are not working for the most of us, you know, we still don't even know really what to replace it with, in a sense. And, you, you know, know, the thing that... The thing that, that it just feels so clear to me is that we can't invent the wheel because we, if we keep going in the same direction, you know, Einstein said, we're ending up in the same place. And that's what we're doing in terms of saving the climate or saving the, the earth, I think, is that, you know, we're we're assuming that science will find the answer. We're assuming that. And I think it's really adopting a different value system. Man, it's not that we have to create something new. The teachers are all around us, indigenous people who know how this works. And they're on every planet. They're the most endangered species on planet, but they live in the most biodiverse areas. And saving the, you know, saving the planet means, first of all, I think, ensuring the survival of indigenous people and indigenous cultures. And that they are so under attack everywhere. Um, from so many well, yeah, it, it's un- it's unfortunate, you know. It's the Monsantos and the, uh, you, you know, the the powerful corporations, you know. Uh, it, I, every, I mean, so, so many different facets of our society that hold power are in direct opposition to everything these people stand for. It, it, it. Well, you know, just like we said uh, with the domestic violence, look how quickly things have changed or may be changing. Maybe there will be a tipping point of some kind, something that will make us start, uh, you know, maybe the maybe, you know, human individuals will start to rise up and say, 
we've had enough. You know, enough is enough, and we're not going to listen to you anymore. And, I mean, who knows? Who knows how it is going to happen? But, um, you know, I think maybe it can change quickly, just like this potential change is afoot with the domestic violence. And I think it is happening. I think it's happening under the radar screen. I think it's happening in in leaderless ways. I think it's happening in so many different ways that it's very hard to even think about putting it together. But thinking about the whole slow food movement, the saving of heritage seeds, the um the you know cooperative um farming, uh the getting rid of monoculture farming uh, it is just you know it, be, it begins with the earth. It begins with Mother Earth. The the United Nations has in front of it now um, the Declaration of Rights of Mother Earth. It's one of the most extraordinary documents that one could imagine. It is the way that the planet can be saved, and the Western nations are ignoring it. Um, it's and it, but it's really growing up in in uh, South America. It's growing up south of us. It's growing up, uh, you know, in in different places in the world. And I think that there's ways that we are reindigenizing. We're we're changing the ways that we're living in the Euro-American culture. And I think that once again, just like the Founding fathers, just like the feminists in the 19th century, we are being inspired by people who know how to live in relationship to each other, in relationship to the land, in relationship to Mother Earth, in a in a, a joyous, thankful, daily relationship with life. Uh, and I think that that um, the model is there. And I think that there's a real process of adopting that model, not appropriating it. That's our default mode. You know, mm-hmm. we, we are the conquerors who come in and take land and then we take ideas and then we seize the spirituality. Mm-hmm. Um, anything that's not nailed down, you better watch out the white people. Um, yeah. But I think that, that not not appropriating, but respectfully learning from and adopting ways that are that are given to us to use. Um, I think it's happening. Well, that's hopeful. Thank you. Thank you for that. And, um, you know, before we wrap this up, um, I, I do I do want to get into one other area uh, it, in, it, you know, of this list that I just read, you know, that the, the women, you know, the rights of women, you said about um, the absolute right to their own bodies. Um, can you speak a little bit toward the idea of contraception or abortion? Was that, you know, was that just a given that, um, you know, the they they made their own decisions about stuff like that as well? You know, I think that, that the deeper question for me or the deeper understanding of that for me is hearing from Native men time and time and time again that they can't begin to wrap their minds around how men could think they would have anything to do with that. That that is so completely a woman's decision that they're just they don't have a sense of how how does a mind process work that says that men should in any way have a say in reproduction Mm -hmm. 
It's the woman's body. And so I think Lakota women have talked about and other Native women have talked about sovereign women in sovereign nations. And I think that that, you know, the self-sovereignty that I am, we're still coming, we're, we're what, a hundred years away from the struggle for personhood in the Euro-Christian cultures, that it wasn't that we didn't have rights. It was that we were defined by the Bible as we are to be under the authority of men, and that becomes common law. That becomes the two shall become one and the one is the man. And so under common law and that whole tradition that we come from, the, the woman was considered to be one with her husband. So, of course, she had no right to her body or her property or could vote or anything because she didn't exist legally. And so I think that coming from that tradition, we are slowly, slowly, slowly demanding personhood and demanding that we be recognized as self-sovereign people. That's a concept and a, a life that, is is absolutely present with indigenous women traditionally that they yeah. are the sovereigns of their own bodies and, um, and you, you know when it comes to us i'm not sure who i'm more annoyed with the men who think they have a right or the women who allow them to continue to have a right you know what i mean the women complicit mm-hmm. in their own oppression i think that makes me angrier than uh than than the men who expect to control it. <laughs> but I think that false consciousness is is just it's it's completely understandable that, you know, when when you're in a position of of one down power wise, it really is a, sometimes a survival thing to identify with the one who has the power over you. And I yeah. think that kind of false consciousness is 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 perfectly understandable in any system of oppression. It's a survival skill. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. Thank you for, for telling me that. It'll help me have patience and compassion. <laughs> well, Sally, well, you this still is get a, mad. <laughs> I, but I'll still get mad. But I'll understand still, a little bit better. It <laughs> <laughs> can still be frustrating. <laughs> yeah. I, I know that there are pieces of that in me, and that's what, you know, I, I mean, I was socialized into being the good girl, oh, and I oh, yeah. just am in awe of, of, you know, I think in the 60s, we had a vision that we would create new human beings, um, that if we changed the cultural conditions sufficiently, we would begin to create new human beings. And I think that we've come far enough in this revolution that we are beginning to create new human beings. And, and I am just in awe of the presence and self that young women have today that we've created the conditions that allow them to to feel more their personhood. And that's exciting to me. Yeah, and and you know, and even though it feels like we're not doing it fast enough on this, you know, on the timeline of human history, I guess maybe it hasn't been that long, you know. We you know, these oh, last few yeah. decades have just been, you know, one tiny little you know, minute blip on the screen of time, even though, you know, it doesn't feel like it's moving fast enough for us. (laughs) You know, and there are changes that have happened in my lifetime, you know, since my 
beginning work in feminism in the late 60s, early 70s, there are things going on today that I never thought I'd see in my lifetime. And that just gives me hope and hope and hope. Good. Well, that, that's you know that's that's a, a good good way to start to close this, Sally. You know, the, I, I really enjoyed talking to you, and I say with all sincerity, if ever you want to come back and talk about any of this sort of stuff, please just shoot me an email with a show topic, and you know we will set a date because, I mean, I have a feeling there are so many more things you and I could talk about that listeners would just you know, eat up like, you know, chocolate cake. So um, keep that <laughs> oh, keep that in the back of well, your mind. Thank you so much. I will do that. And I really enjoyed it, Karen, too. Thank you so much for asking me. And and before I let you go tonight, please, uh, two things. I want to make sure if there's anything I haven't asked you that you want to make sure you punctuate tonight, I want to give you a moment to do it. And then also please tell us where we can get your books, where we can find out more about your work, uh, or anything you want listeners to know that, that you believe is you know, important. Oh, well, thank you, Karen. I think the the thing that I would would just like to to say again is is not was that indigenous people are present in the world today i think the leadership in saving the planet comes from indigenous women they are my leaders they're the ones i look to for inspiration they're the ones my foremothers look to for inspiration and they're still generous spirited present today and and willing to work with us and mentor us and 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 help us understand the world better as they lead us into uh, a world of survival um, the if people would like to be in touch with me um, it's I have a website Sally at sallyrushwagner.com and let me spell that um, Sally is pretty easy. It's just a Y, S-A-L-L-Y, and R-O-E-S-C-H-W-A-G-N-E-R, SallyRushWagner.com. In your, in so your book, you. Sisters in Spirit, oh, um, Sisters is that on Amazon Spirit. or all yes. the usual places? Yeah, or? yeah it is. Uh-huh. It, it's published through a native publisher. Uh, they, where they publish primarily native books. And I really wanted it to be positioned there. And I was so grateful and, and happy when they uh, were interested in publishing the book. The new so manuscript, I don't have a publisher yet. And it looks at... Uh, really, survival is indigenous. Gloria Steinem renamed it. <laughs> what once was can be again. And so I'm looking for a publisher, and uh, once that's out, maybe I could come back on your show and talk about it. Well, most definitely. You know, that or any women's issues or, you know, any of this kind of stuff. I would, uh, you know, or, or even, you know, talk about the, uh, more about Matilda uh, Jocelyn uh, Gaines, oh, too. Oh, you know, i you know, the early suffragists, you know, I haven't really had yeah. a show about that and talked about them very much. So, um, uh, you know, that, that would make an interesting uh, show as well, I think. Love to. Okay, well, we'll do it. We'll definitely do okay. it. 
Well, Sally, thank you so much. And uh, I think the final thing I wanted to ask was for any of my listeners that want to know more about Indigenous women, um, besides your book, is there any other places you can point them to so that they can, you know, learn more about uh, this, you know, Native American women pre-colonial times? Oh boy, you know, there <laughs> there is so much to recommend, but I will do one person and that's Paula Allen. And I'll do that because actually would you mind if I read a little quote from her? No, go right because ahead. This was actually where I first saw the or got the idea. She is really my initial mentor. And in the sacred hoop Recovering the Feminine in American Indian Traditions, mm-hmm. Polygon Allen wrote, Beliefs, attitudes, and laws such as these became part of the vision of American feminists and other human liberation movements around the world. Yet feminists too often believe that no one has ever experienced the kind of society that empowered women and made that empowerment the basis of its rules and civilization. The price the feminist community must pay because it is not aware of the recent presence of gynarchical societies on this continent is unnecessary confusion, division, and much lost time. The root of oppression is the loss of memory. Wow. That's I got goosebumps. That that uh, that mm. is powerful stuff. And you know, and, and look, I consider myself a feminist. And honestly, I I'm willing to admit it. You know, um, it, we just aren't pointed, you know, often enough to the Native American women. You know, we're uh, you know we're always looking for matriarchal or matrilineal cultures, and you know we don't so much look right here on our own continent. I think you know mm-hmm. we'll look back in history to some culture around the world before we look right here in the United States. I I mean, I think that's what she's saying, right? Yes, exactly. Yep, exactly. Okay. Good connection. Well, we know better now. At least my listeners will. (laughs) (laughs) Well, thank you so much, Karen. I really enjoyed this. Me too. I really have, Sally. And thank you so much for your patience. And I apologize again for the snafu in the beginning. It it usually isn't that crazy. (laughs) (laughs) So good luck with your book and your new manuscript. And, um, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of other sources, but, uh, you know, most of my books have been published through John Hunt Publishing, uh, and they distribute here in the United States as well as over Mm -hmm. in Europe. Um, I can't imagine that they wouldn't want to publish your manuscript. Uh, So if you, you know, if you ever get to the point where you want me to make an introduction for you, please don't hesitate. Um, oh, you know, thank if, you if, so much. Yeah, that might be a way you want to go. So, All right. Well, uh, thank you so much for your work in the world, Sally, and uh, I'm sure we will chat again. Great. Thank you, Karen. Okay. okay good night. Okay. Good night. Well, I'm sure, dear listeners, you enjoyed that as much as I did. That was an awful of fun and I promise I will have Sally back again. She is a fount of information. I'm sure we can go in lots of different directions. And uh, I also uh, turning my attention to Joe Carson. I want to thank her and Dancing with Gaia for helping keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air. So please give this a listen.
most people see humankind as really separate from nature and separate from the earth. I'm as much of this earth as a rock or a tree. And I came out of it. This is, this is my mother planet. I grew out of this earth. As long as we conceive of divinity as above us or outside of us, or that our bodies are somehow less divine than spirit, there's no way that we can change our course. Well, uh, listeners, I'm sure you're familiar with that sound. Uh, that uh, was a, a, some, a clip from Dancing with Gaia, uh, the documentary by Joe Carson, and explores the connection between earth energy, sacred sexuality, and the goddesses Gaia. It features 15 visionaries who give us tools to feel the life of the planet within ourselves, and it comes with a 45-page mini-book, and it all of that costs just $20. You can get your own copy at dancingwithgaia.com. Uh, I have seen it. I have watched it. It is very good. Uh, without a doubt, I would recommend you have it in your library or think about giving it uh, as a gift. So uh, I think you maybe know this sound. We are crossing the threshold into the next part of the show. I want to invite you to stay tuned for my What's the Buzz segment when I talk about the headlines uh, regarding the NFL and domestic violence against women and uh, uh, the oppression of women in the uh, pornography industry. Uh, But first, a few reminders and announcements. Um, I want to make sure, uh, if you haven't uh, heard the show in a while, that you know that the Sacred Tour to Turkey is in place for late May uh, 2015. And I'm going to be leading a tour with Dr. James Reedfeld. It's going to be 16 days in May of 2015. And uh, for those of you who might not be aware, maybe you haven't really thought about Turkey very much. I've been there a few times. And, you know, I have to tell you, it is not overrun with tourists like, say, Egypt is, for instance. Uh, It is still a diamond in the rough. Uh, It is a melting pot of cultures and just replete with sacred sites devoted to many different uh, feminine faces of God, including Mary, Aphrodite, Isis, Kubaba, now there's a name you might not have heard before, Uh, Hecate, Athena, Hera, Demeter, Cabelli, Artemis, and and many more. In fact, Hecate's only known standing temple dedicated just to her uh, is in Lagina, in Turkey, and that's on our itinerary. Uh, The trip, uh, honestly, uh, I know it's not cheap, but it will be a trip of a lifetime. Um, Those of you who delight in history or goddess advocates who want to, uh, you know, put your feet on the sacred land uh, or sacred places where goddess was revered, Uh, You know what? Every day we will be doing this in many, many different places. I think the tour will tickle your exoteric and esoteric psyche. Uh, You will enjoy delicious food. There will be, as I call it, sacred shopping. And you know what? Your dollars spend so much better in Turkey because they are not uh, converted over to the euro yet. Uh, Just some of the destinations on the itinerary include Istanbul, where we'll see the Hagia Sophia, 
you know, the, the Blue Mosque. Uh, we'll see the fairy chimneys of Cappadocia. We'll go to the incredible <clears throat> Anatolian Museum, uh, and you will see the actual artifact that they found in Chateau-Hayouk that is uh, sort of the pr- uh, pre-precursor uh, to our Cabelli statues with the goddess uh, giving birth while she's flanked on either side by two lions, you know, the one that was found in the grain bin at Chateau Hayuk. Uh, we will uh, see whirling dervish performances. We'll go to the Arumi Museum, the Artemis Temple, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. We will see temples of Isis, Aphrodite, um, you know, other destinations are Pamelukhe, uh, Pergamon, Assos, the rock churches of Zelv, uh, the Zell Valley, Aspendos, uh, Miletus, uh, Troy. I mean, uh, 16 days, uh, you will just never forget it. If uh, if you think, you know, you got one big trip like this in you, you know, whether it be from money, energy, time, whatever it is, uh, think about think about doing this trip. Uh, my co-leader, Dr. James Reitfeld, he is a religion scholar and archaeologist. He's a goddess advocate. He's been to Turkey numerous times, like myself. Uh, he's probably con- he's he, he's humble about it, but um, you know, and, and you won't hear him boast. But uh, I really do believe he is probably one of the foremost American authorities on Artemis of Ephesus, and his groundbreaking book on her will be out very shortly. So. Uh, we are not going to take a lot of people, probably 20 at most. So if you think uh, that could be in your future, uh, please get in touch with me. You'll want to get your deposit down to secure your spot. And you know what? If that's too big of a trip, but uh, you still got some travel in you for the summer or in the months ahead, uh, I want to remind you about my Sacred Places of Goddess 108 Destinations book. Uh, if you're ready to hit the road on a self-driven goddess tour in the U.S. or abroad, uh, but you're not really sure where to go or how to get there, uh, you can let this book help you out a lot. Not only uh, can you travel to sacred places of the divine feminine up and down the West Coast, uh, but you can find other U.S. and international destinations as well. And you know what? I know for a fact there is nothing like it between two covers. It's gotten prestigious endorsements. And if you want a copy, you can get one from me. I'll sign it for you. Or it's sold in all the usual places, including museum bookstores, which I am very proud of. So uh, think about that. And you know what? If you like sacred travel, but you know you're never going to get out of that armchair, uh, I would direct you to my book, uh, Walking an Ancient Path. Uh, It has chapters detailing esoteric and exoteric experiences as I travel to Egypt, Turkey, Ireland, Italy, uh, and and, you know many more, as well as a lot of other stuff about um, um, bringing uh, the ideals uh, of goddess, deity, archetype, and ideal uh, into your life uh, personally or into your community. So think about that, too, walking an ancient path. And I thank you for the time to uh, remind you about all of that. So uh, there's something here that uh, I've been having a lot of fun with. It's uh, by Alea Deo. You know, I I think in our society uh, there's so much that we have to rethink, that we have to relearn, 
sometimes I like to say we have to just awaken. Yep, time to awaken, time to shake up everybody around us and wake them up to uh, a new world, a new normal, that's for sure. And, you know, I'm just saying, and I'm sure you know, but, you know, got to say it, a lot of work goes into this show every week, year in and year out. And I hope, uh, if you can, you can show your appreciation and support by either sending a donation to help keep Voices of the Sacred Feminine on the air, or help me by buying one of my books, uh, either from me or from a local bookseller uh, that's preferred to Amazon. But you know what? Amazon is okay if it's uh, your last resort or your only resort. Um, so I hope you'll keep that in mind. If you would like to make a donation, you can go to my website, uh, KarenTate.com. Just go to the Goddess Store page, and toward the bottom uh, of that page, there is a button that allows you to make a donation of any amount uh, using PayPal. So, uh, here's... Well, if you're new to the show, you might not know what that was. That's buzzing bees, and it's time for that uh, segment that I call uh, "What's the Buzz," where I talk about the bees buzzing around in my bonnet, and the bees buzzing around in my bonnet this week most certainly are about the opportunity. Yes, the opportunity. The NFL is potentially squandering, but maybe not. I'm remaining hopeful. Uh, I get it that these players make their uber, these uber-rich and powerful men in their team's money. I get that. So what? NFL, I'm talking to you like a man. Be a real one. Have the cojones to come out and make a stand that you have a zero-tolerance policy against domestic violence and the abuse of children. If you do, that will send a message like no other. You will be remembered in history as, as a mover and shaker that did so much to change society for the better. Wouldn't you rather be remembered like that, NFL? Or would you rather be remembered uh, as the protector of abusers? And you know what? If the NFL does this, then it will have to filter down into basketball and baseball and every other male bastion of power like the military. Yes, there can be a zero-tolerance policy. Men cannot use and abuse women. It's that simple. You know, all during uh, these couple weeks that you know we've been talking about Ray Rice and uh, the NFL and domestic violence, I have not heard anyone mention O.J. Simpson and his wife Nicole. Or, or, or have you thought that as well? You know we know how that ended up. Nicole dead. And how many times did she call the LAPD about domestic violence? And what about roid rage? They call uh, they call it that, you know, when people take steroids, you know, what steroids does to these athletes. 
um, you know, it turns them sometimes in, into psychos. Not that long ago, a wrestler went nuts because of steroid use, killed his kids and his wife, then himself because of steroids. You know, we really must do all we can do to evolve humanity's consciousness. Yes, you hear me talk about a new normal. Yes, this zero-tolerance policy against domestic violence and abuse of children has to be the new normal. So keep up the good work out there applying pressure to the NFL. If they crumble and do the right thing here, it will be an incredible It will be a powerful teaching moment that could have consequences for patriarchy like none we have seen in our lifetimes. Don't underestimate this. This is an important time. No, women are not punching bags or a hole to plug. I'm sorry for being crude, but let's just say it like it is. That's what some women endure. And I want to stress, punctuate, emphasize in big red letter words, this is not all men. We love our feminist men, our men who care and share and don't engage in this kind of power over or abuse or usury. You are our heroes and partners, and we need your voices out there. We need you to stand up to the status quo and support women in this. Be seen standing at our side on the front lines, because in this culture, the media is often quick to say, what's wrong with our society? when they should be saying, what's wrong with some men in this dominator patriarchal society? Call out the gender that needs to be held accountable for the abuse. Some men, many men, have a problem, and they need to be schooled on what's right. That abuse of women from the Bible is no longer an excuse. It doesn't hold water. Nobody believes it. You can't abuse women or control women or take away their rights because some holy book somewhere tells you women are there to serve or submit to you. That is just not the way it's going to be in the new world order. You are our protectors. We should not need protection from you. Okay, those are the bees buzzing around in my bonnet tonight. And you know what? I want to say thanks to Keith Oberman for sounding the alarm bell on this many, many weeks ago. A man and a male-dominated profession who had the cojones to call out the NFL. We miss you on MSNBC so much, Keith. We really do. And in a peripheral issue, uh, porn, I want to share this uh, that came from a loyal listener who asked to remain anonymous. She said, Dear Miss Karen, I just finished listening to the first half of your show with Peter Wilkes, author of A Woman Called God, and as often happens during your shows, thoughts begin to arise. His quote that, quote, Sex is screwed up, unquote, made me laugh out loud because that is the truest statement I have heard so far. And as a recovering porn addict, I know what I'm talking about. Feel free, she said, to read the highlighted portions of this email, and I am going to do that. And thank you for doing this research for me and making it easy because I'm busy and otherwise might not have found this. So... Uh, She says, I believe that in order to make changes, the truth about porn must become common knowledge. Young people today have their introduction to porn via social media, and they are met 
and, and they are met with extreme scenes of violence, girls screaming while men pound them like men possessed, male performers gagging, choking, and slapping much younger female performers who are often forcibly drugged by the producer. Yes, there is a new brand of porn called female-friendly porn, which is much softer and downright romantic and actually shows the beauty of sex. It doesn't involve violence or anything extreme. In many cases, they rarely show close-ups of the private parts, but that is more often than not not the first image of porn young people are met with. Former porn actresses turned ordained chaplain and anti-porn activist Shelley Lubin has frequently shared her story, and she and many other former and even current porn actors confirm that the producers would force them into doing extreme scenes involving multiple partners and would provide alcohol and drugs such as GHB, Vicodin, crystal meth, Xanax, and more. Many female performers have had their reproductive systems completely destroyed from hardcore porn acts. Some quotes from Shelley's book, The Truth About the Fantasy of Porn, or go like this. This is uh, Shelley Lubin, uh, her quotes. While filming the movie Rough Six 2, porn star Reagan Starr described in horrific terms in an interview with Talk Magazine in February 2001 that while sex acts were performed on her, she was hit and choked until she couldn't breathe. Other actresses, she wept, wept because they were hurting so badly. Jersey Jackson described guys punching you in the face. You have semen all over your face. In in your eyes, you get ripped. Your insides can come out of you. You're viewed as an object, not as a human with a spirit. Women hate making porn. They know deep down that they were not created to lie on a filthy bed with semen and spit all over them while much older men take turns in destroying her. My listener says you can read more uh, at ShellyLubin.com backslash porn industry. And uh, she said if you let the mouse hover over porn facts on the upper board, you can find out more information like 36 porn performers have died from HIV, suicide, homicide, and drugs between 2007 and 2010. 66 to 100% of porn performers have herpes, an incurable disease. The largest group viewing online porn is ages 12 to 17. Over 100 gay and straight performers have died from AIDS. Since 2004, there have been almost 2,400 reported cases of chlamydia and 1,400 cases of gonorrhea among performers. The Adult Industry Medical Healthcare Foundation has reported 26 cases of HIV since 2004. 70% of of sexually transmitted infections in the porn industry occur in females, according to the County of Los Angeles Public Health. If boys and girls could be taught already from their first year in school that humankind first worshipped deity as a woman, I think a lot would be changed. If boys were faced with the horrible truth about the videos they watch in order to get horny, I believe things would change. Real men treat women with respect, and sadly, too many porn movies do not show women being treated with respect. You know, I was talking to my husband about this, and he said, you know, there are a lot of women who make an awful lot of money 
do in porn? Well, you know, I don't know how accurate that is. There are maybe a couple women who make an awful lot of money. But, you know, that's like saying, and I had one guy tell me this, that women are doing fine because Oprah is successful. You know, one or two women being successful or making a lot of money isn't an example of what it's like for all women. So, you know, I think it's time to call a halt to violence against women, which brings me back to the NFL. Any way you can put pressure, tweet, Facebook, um, write the media, however you want to do it, join this, um, you know, join this, uh, you know, this cacophony of voices out there that are pushing the NFL to do something about this. It could really have staggering consequences, consequences that really, really help women. So um, one more announcement before I say goodbye for tonight, my dear listeners. Um, And if you are in Southern California and you're anywhere near Westlake Village, uh, after my big book launch party on the 27th of September, uh, the very next week uh, I have a gig in what we call Westlake Village. Uh, the, The presentation I'm making is called Founding Mothers, Unearthing Our Rich Female Legacy from Washington, D.C. and Beyond. Um, With me will be Celeste Yarnell, uh, activist, actress, movie producer, along with singer-songwriter Jackie Clark. Uh, They will be sharing the stage with me and uh, Rowan Storm, um, internationally known uh, uh, drummer, uh, drumming facilitator. And uh, in my presentation, we will discover the untapped feminine, deity role model, and values or ideals often overlooked though they may be hidden in plain sight from public buildings and national monuments in Washington and uh, D.C. and New York to museums and temples and industrial parks. Learn what the founding fathers thought of the sacred feminine and female archetypes. Discover what values and ideals the feminine consciousness offers society for a more sustainable, just, balanced, and equitable future. So that's Saturday, October 4th from 7 to 9 at the Center for Spiritual Living in Westlake Village. Um, That's on Hampshire Road uh, in Westlake Village. If you want more information, just get in touch with me or go to their website, cslwestlake.org. And you know what? Uh, Obviously, uh, Dr. Sally was talking to us at the beginning of the show. You know, the uh, Iroquois women were just one example, uh, often overlooked, though they may be hidden in plain sight, of uh, of the answer. You know, the answer is out there. We don't have to reinvent it. The answer is out there. So uh, as we close tonight, um, I would like to just read a very quick little thing from the Goddess Temple of Orange County. Uh, in the monthly prayer that comes out uh, for September, they say, Great Goddess, I accept the harvest of my work, I receive, receive all good things. Blessed be. Blessed be. So, as um, I say goodnight to you uh, and invite you to be with me again next week, I will leave you with the beautiful music of Abigail Spinner McBride, Arms of the Mother. Hey, mama.